Welcome to Across the Pond. My name is Chris Lawson and I'm joined across the pond by Samuel Monning. Say hello, Sam. Hey, Chris. How are you, sir? Good. Very good. And we've got two very special guests with us today. I'm very, very glad that we've got Adrian and Amanda joining us uh, today. So just a quick intro on Adrian, first of all. He's a setup co-founder, managing director of Brands with Values and co-founder of BAME 2020, which we're talk a bit more about and Adrian set that up so that he could work with clients to unlock their their unique culture and I think that's a really important point that culture is very individual to help maximize that return to employees shareholders and a wider society and I think we're, we'll talk more about that impact on wider society as well uh, catching up with Adrian before I know he's got a lot of experience prior to that around brand marketing so at Barclays and Eurostar and cut his teeth in his career in advertising industry at Ogilvy. So so a lot to cover there. And Amanda, I've known Amanda for a, a long time now, since about 2007. Amanda's sort of got huge heritage in recruitment and search in the marketing PR and comm sector. She's founder of F1 Recruitment. And when we met, Amanda had heard about what I was doing at Absolute Radio and wanted to find out more. And that interest she took in an early stage and transformative stage of my career, I think sums Amanda up really. It's that that interest in helping people throughout the career and following them through and, and is really a, a fierce advocate of, of the individual and championing the individual. And, and most importantly, that championing inclusivity, diversity and social mobility. And she co-founded BAME 2020 with with Adrian and again we'll hear a bit more of that so so welcome to both of you. Now Sam I think you're gonna sort of talk a little bit more about what we're what we want to do today. Yeah I think for me it's uh, hearing about the BAME 2020 work that's been done and hearing about it through Chris and looking at the work via LinkedIn etc it's just um, wanting to hear a bit more about about it and how it's how it's working and sort of some of the dynamic that's happening in the UK. In the, I'm based in the US and you can imagine with everything that's been going on in 2020, 2021 and before that, long before that, um, this issue of diversity, inclusion, representation is huge. So we'd just love to hear from the story of Amanda and Adrian. Why don't you just take us through how you met in the first place and how you know each other? Yeah, so Amanda, I've known for about 15 or 20 years. And actually, Amanda employed my, employed my wife many, many, many moons ago. But aside from that, as I was sort of going through my various, my career in all the marketing roles, uh, Amanda and I kind of built quite a special bond. And it was at the point where I decided that there was a job to be done around driving inclusion and diversity and leaning into this issue. She was the natural person to align with because she's been supporting the agendas around women for years. And um, she seemed like the right person to align with, given what I was experiencing as an employee, getting into quite a senior role, and my desire to drive change. From your, and from your perspective, Amanda, does that, does that story ring, ring familiar? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think hearing Adrian's, hearing his story and, and about his ambition level in the marketing sector and in the touch of disillusionment that the, the sector was just really very undiverse. And mm-hmm. having worked with the Advertising Association for many years on their diversity programmes, going back to 2000, and 
are still experiencing, you know, less than 4% of marketing directors coming from a, a Black Asian minority ethnic background. I think I, I could, it was palpable, the frustration from Adrian that, you know, he'd walk into a marketing society event and be one of one or two, you know, Black yeah. people in the room, for example. And I think I just felt compelled to do something about it because people kept talking about equal opportunities policies and diversity policies and it was never actually manifesting itself in much action because there was never any change at the top <laughs> so clearly whatever was in place wasn't working so that sort of right. galvanized us both to form this partnership which resulted mm -hmm. in us creating this movement which was at the time called BAME 2020. Well uh, you know as you t as you talk about that experience I recall early in my career well even now you're walking into um, buildings offices especially on the agency side and if I just vividly recall a couple of organizations which were more PR centric that I was you know um, interviewing for and I literally would walk in you'd, you'd walk through you'd see maybe you'd see hundreds of people and not see a single person of color and you'd see one black person that'd be like you'd lock eyes you'd do the head nod and you'd acknowledge each other because it, it is it is a feeling often and now based in the US unfortunately it's slightly better but not a lot better but as you talked about how you both sort of connected how, how do you experience this and I know your personalities complement each other, do you think? Stunned silence. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're quite good foils to each other, actually. Don't you agree, Adrian? I think we're, you know, you've got, I mean, you know, if I present myself, you know, middle-class white woman that was privately educated, okay? I mean, I, I can use that white privilege, frankly. And I've been through the whole, I came into my work, I didn't go to university, for example. I came into my career in recruitment at, at the age of 18 and had to battle my way through what was then quite, a, then was you know, a kind of male sector. And I think that I, I had work my way through managing a female career. Uh, and I think that that I think Adrian and I are quite a good foil for each other. I mean, I would, I, I'm quite outspoken. I think we're both quite outspoken, but that we can both support each other. And it's been a mutually supportive partnership, I think. But Adrian, what do you think? Well, I wouldn't agree with that. No, <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> no, actually, that's the beauty of it, really. We, we've trodden different paths, but there's a mm. lot of alignment in our values and the things that we hold dear. So when it came to fostering a partnership, Amanda was a natural choice because what we've seen is a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon about these issues and mm -hmm. the fact that Amanda has been doing this for such a long time meant that she was very authentic. And that was why I was very keen to work with someone with that sort of level of authenticity, as well as the desire and the energy and the motivation to get things done, because this is not easy work. You know, it's a bit like what Martin Luther, in the spirit of Martin Luther King, you know, if you can't fly, you know, run, if you can't run, walk, if you can't walk, crawl, but you've got to keep moving. And that's right. the kind of thing that Amanda and I have done since 2016. And it's quite interesting to watch the market open up and more people get involved in this topic. But we've been at it for five years now. And well, in this guise, but Amanda, probably the previous 25. Yeah, so let's, let's just talk about that. I mean, Amanda, from your perspective, did that really lead on to it? Was it the you know, battling sort of from a, a female perspective in a sort of a male-orientated industry and then thinking, right, well, that's my why for trying to work through on BAME 2020 and, and increased representation there. Is, is that how it sort of came about from your perspective? Well, look, I mean, I, I've always believed in, in, in using 
your your business to create societal change. I mean, I was working mm. on work experience programs with the BBC back in the 1990s. So I've, it, it has always been part of my work is to create societal change. Mm. And when we set up F1 in 2004, it was very clear to me that we would have to do, we took two strands of the, you know, diversity mix, so intersectionality. We took two and it was gender and it was ethnicity. And the gender returners program that we created that was because I could see quite clearly that we were losing women more backgrounds from the marketing and advertising and PR sector mm. at around the, the time of their second child and it was quite clear to me that the professional services sector and banking sector was doing a hell of a lot better than the um, marketing services sector at retaining that talent or bringing it back so that was that was the gender piece and really the ethnicity side I mean I've, I've recruited for the BBC many many years ago I mean you know when I was in my 20s and they we you didn't get onto their preferred recruitment partner you couldn't become one unless you could evidence the diversity of your candidate base and this was back in you know the late 1980s 1990s you had to evidence the diversity of your candidate base and this was way before you know CRM systems I mean so you you couldn't be a BBC recruitment partner so mm-hmm. it, it astounded me that when I set up my own business that we weren't being asked those questions by companies we were recruiting for. They were saying they had a robust equal opportunities policy or diversity policy, but actually when you ask them what that meant and what did they need us to demonstrate as a recruitment partner, and it was like, well, what's your diversity, what's your what's your EO policy? It was like, well, yeah, but that's not, you need to be asking me to evidence the diversity of my candidate base, because I can tell you that, aren't you interested you know, it's 53% female and it's X percentage of this age group. And we've got X percentage that have a disability and X percentage that identify as LGBTQ, you know, and it's X percentage mm-hmm. coming from a, a non-white background. That that should interest you. And yet we were never being asked those questions. So I guess when Adrian and I really started the, the, the movement, it was, it was basically to try and force some questions around the granular activity that we saw as being not easy to change but certainly if the right questions are being asked particularly of the recruitment supply chain that that is one way of changing the makeup of the sector is to engage the recruitment sector because they're part of the problem part of the solution so adrian over the last few years what's what's been your biggest surprise during this journey sort of setting up bain 2020 at that point and then taking that forward I think my biggest surprise at the moment is I see a lot of people not really understanding that the job in hand is a cultural change program. Mm. So if you, you know, replace DNI with digital transformation or want to become a more sustainable business, these are proper change programs which have leadership commitment, have governance, are clearly well articulated and have good background as to why they're doing it. And they're funded and they've got proper measures in place to be able to track progress. I think when you look at the DNI side of things, people are still sort of hunting around for the solution. So people look at this problem and they run around in Harvard Business Review or look for the latest consultant. They bring them in, make use of Black History Month, run a training program, and then they're looking, they expect change to happen. And they still don't understand that this is... Uh, uh, a subject that needs to be done meaningfully and sustainably over the long term, 
And what they need to do is rather look internally at their culture and really understand uh, the context of which they're trying to drive change. Because I think there's a lot of things that aid inclusion and a lot of them uh, sit within having a healthy culture. A lot of them sit with having real robust metrics to measure their culture of what it is they're trying to change. And what I see now is still a lot of people operating in a, a superficial space and then being surprised when they're seeing the metrics are not moving forward for BAME people. They are continually to be, two things are happening. They're either surviving the squeezed middle, i.e. not leaving and making their way to the top, and then they're falling off the glass cliff. And that all relates to people not understanding that actually you have to treat this as a culture change program. Well, I, I love the word culture. I've been studying and using it for years, but I, re- I do recall when I, I talked about a role which involved, you know, driving culture. Some people would like look at you quizzically and other people would just start laughing because apparently that word was a joke. So can you help us understand what culture means? Because it's clearly something that over the last few years has become more preeminent and more meaningful. Yeah, so when I look at organisational culture and the way we're measuring it, for me, all of the policies, programmes and procedures that are bestowed on an organisation by leadership and subsequently all of the behaviours that are manifested by colleagues in the way they communicate and the way they behave, the sum total of that becomes the culture. Yeah? And a lot of what drives leadership and a lot of what drives colleagues to create that culture is a direct manifestation of a couple of things. One, it's driven by their own personal values, so the sorts of things that get them out of bed every morning and inform the way they communicate and behave. It's the sum total of what people experience as a result of policies, programs and procedures. So what's my lived experience as someone from a a black background? What's my experience from a gender perspective? What's my experience from a tenure perspective, departmental, geography? That, as well as, I suppose, a view on what people desire within an organisation is what makes up the culture. But what happens when people are measuring it, leadership, look at what I consider to be proxy measures to understand whether they've got a great culture or not. I attrition's okay in this organisation, so we must have a good culture. Or the engagement survey has, has told us we've got a great culture. Well, actually, all those engagement surveys are doing is they are just telling leaders whether certain variables that they think drive culture, how well they're doing or not. So have we got good leaders? Have we got good products? Are we competitive? Have we got good well-being program? They then measure those to understand whether they've got a good culture. And what they don't do is understand forensically in the way sort of farmers understand their soil. Yeah, they don't do that in the way farmers do. And farmers do that so they can allow myriad flowers to grow. And organisations are not in that space. Yeah, I love that analogy of, of the farmers. And as I'm thinking about it here, again, we're, we're recording in beginning of 2021, early part of the year, but clearly 2020 has been seismic. I'm sat in the US uh, being, being a Brit over here, but the Black Lives Matter movement has, has certainly become a nomenclature that is 
is in the is in people's minds and it's traveled the world and definitely hit home in the UK. So I'm curious to know how that has shaped some of the some of what you're talking about before. Is it has it had an impact on how people see see things and how people understand? So from my perspective, there are two things which has changed individuals globally, right? And obviously one is obviously COVID nineteen and I think the other one was sort of the George Floyd episode. That, I think, for people prior to that moment, just generally joining the rat race and incrementally moving up the greasy pole, you know, they received a big (laughs) sort of drop of cold water. And that cold Mm. water got people to think about their personal values and what drives them when they saw that particular episode. And I think the fact that people have completely transformed the way they work, working at home, spending more time with their families... It's got people to soul search around what their values are and what what drives them. And I think those two things has provided a kind of a softening to uh, values around community and as opposed to relentlessly in pursuit of commercial return and profit. And I think that is providing a platform to be able to lean into these agendas in, in new ways as, yeah, I wanted to follow up with Amanda, because as I'm listening into the discussion, it prompts the, the conversation that you uh, you mentioned earlier about being asked the questions. You had all the info, you had all the data, and you're thinking, why is no one asking me this stuff? So has that changed now? Are people now pro- proactively asking more stuff? Uh, are they more interested? Do they understand it more, do you think? Yes. I mean, yeah, they do, which is great. But I think there's been a, you know, a plethora, if you work in the corporate communications sector like we do, this ESG, environmental, societal and governance. I mean, you just you just hear this the whole time. Suddenly, companies have created a team that specialises in ESG and societal change and, you know, what I could have codenamed progressive capitalism, i.e. can purpose and profit sit as good bedfellows, which is something that you know, we're about to become a B Corp when they put societal change and good governance and sustainability at the heart of what your organisation does. You have to change your articles of association. And yes, I mean, there's lots of, and this is where you have to kind of unpick who's actually serious about it and who's just, you know, window dressing. And there is still, I, I think, window dressing going on during 2020 as a kind of reaction and there are plenty of brands that have been, you know, had a tough time because they did react rather than just really think about how they were going to react. And that's one of the reasons, and we'll come on to this in a minute, I'm sure, why we've uh, moved on from calling ourselves BAME 2020 to No Turning Back 2020. Because, you know, very soon after the George Floyd incident, Adrian and I were on the phone and together and we were like, right, OK, our phone is going to start ringing now. You know, right. and we're going to start to hear from people that we've been trying to get conversations with about right. for a long time and off. And it did. And that's exactly, you know, what happened. There was a, you know, a, a reaction with people desperate to get advice and insight and, and help. And that's when we decided that 2020 was going to be the year for no turning back because mm. some of the groundwork's been done until 2020. And then really from now, 2021, this is where we need to keep the momentum going and we need to keep the drive for change going so that 2020 just doesn't just become the year where everybody started to speak more about the subject and recognize the need for change but actually you know we look back in 5 years time and actually what was the systemic changes that actually happened as a result of what we saw um last year so yes i mean we're being i mean <laughs> I, I, i'm having conversations 
all the t- I have to bite my lips so hard at the moment because I've been in conversations with companies that are now saying, well, of course, you're not going to be able to work with us any any longer, Amanda, through your recruitment business if you can't demonstrate and actually <laughs> prove that you have at least, you know, oh, no. 16%. I'm like, we, I wrote that. David and I actually wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. play, it, play it back to yeah. me <laughs> oh, I, I love that it's like yeah you better be old you know what I've heard that you know this yeah, and this and this that. is important and it's like did you actually do any research and who might did you check oh I love that well isn't that some sort that must be satisfying right yes yep yep do you think that people have actually just taken stock individually as well as from a company perspective and said do you know what I want to I want to change how I do business I want to change how I run my lives and, and has that made an impact? I've certainly seen that from our side and that's reflected in the work that we do. I think because of that kind of reset moment, organisations more than ever have been keen to listen in on to a listening tool to understand what their motivations are for their colleagues, what they currently see from an internal point of perspective and getting their view on what they desire. So that's allowed us to speak with loads of clients and do loads of work in people tracking their culture. And I think it links back to the point that you were talking about earlier on around consistency. And you need to be able to track that. And Mm -hmm. I think our tools are providing a lot of context for organisations. Firstly, listening to their employees and therefore reconfiguring their organisations to suit their needs, including things around making them more inclusive. So, Amanda, just in in terms of a pandemic, how how have you seen it change the recruitment industry? Yeah. Okay. So, I think on an individual perspective, people are talking when when you we always ask people when they're looking for work, what are the three key things that will motivate them in the next role? And one of the key things that is coming out now is that there is a concern for the individual inside the organisation how they're going to progress. There's this work life balance. I mean. Hackneyed phrase now, but I think people, I think companies might be quite surprised at, at the expectation of employees that they are not going to be coming into an office five days a week or even four days a week. There are people that a lot of the people we're talking to will are keen to do like a, you know, a 10 day a month in the office, spit it how they will, but half the time at the office, half the time at home. That has yeah. changed forever. It is never going to go back, ever going to go back. I think people have realised that they do not want to do that commute. They do not want to be stuck in an underground. They want to spend more time at home with their with, with their families or with their friends or, do, or with hobbies. They want to have a better balance. And that that, that is that, that is never going to change. And I think organisations around this societal change, I mean, also individuals want to work for companies that are actually are making a contribution towards systemic change in the world you know mm-hmm. societal change or environmental change it's a question that's coming up time and time again in our interviews with with individuals looking for their next role and they're asking really difficult questions I mean I've got a, a candidate on an interview at the moment who is from an underrepresented group and the, the, the boldness of the questions how can you evidence that you are an inclusive employer could you please give me three examples what last year has done it has given people permission to ask those questions that they would in the past have thought were inappropriate or possibly would put them at a disadvantage in the interview selection process. Those are now questions that 
doesn't matter what age you are, it's it, it almost like 2020 has given you permission to ask, what does your company do beyond making money? What, why are you here? What is your purpose? What good do you do in the world beyond creating return for your shareholders? And people articulate that question in slightly different ways, but the, people are people are feeling bolder about putting organizations on point, I think. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I just, I just so resonate. I can imagine the questions coming up now, and the, the irony, of course, certainly in the US, it's that a lot of that data existed or exists. Um, there's some employee data that has to be submitted to to the government if if you're over a certain size. So a lot, a lot of the time, they actually have the data or they have the information. It's just really not wanting or not being comfortable sharing it. So I love the fact that people are emboldened. And as I was listening to you, and I just, I that, but the, the renaming, the rebranding of no turning back. That's so. That's such a provocative, powerful positioning statement. What's some, some responses you've been getting to that? Well, it's interesting. See, I mean, I we were not looking for any sort of validation in doing it. It just felt like the right thing to do because what we saw post George Floyd is just the emerging bandwagon with everybody wanting to have a conversation to build awareness and understanding about a topic we've been talking about for the last five years. So. That no turning back piece for us was to say, well, we're not, we, we cannot go backwards, but people need, it's action, not words. Mm-hmm. So no turning back was a call to arms to say, what actions is your organisation going to take mm-hmm. given um, this watershed moment in 2020? And to be honest with you, as I said, whilst we don't do it for external validation, from my perspective, it's been very positive. Because I think people are now seeing that DNI is not a tactical initiative. It's not about running training programs. It's not about getting people to speak. It's it's more deeper than that. And people need to take action and leadership needs to be committed. And they need to understand that it can bring a greater return for them in the long run. And I think that's been what I've certainly experience with the companies that I've been talking to. I don't know if Amanda's got a a similar or complementary perspective. Yeah, well, I think I was speaking to a a global consultancy just last week who have picked up one of our BAME 2020 ambassadors, no turning back ambassadors, a young lad that has only been in the sector for a year that was about to leave because of the pretty our experience he had pre-COVID in induction and onboarding with a company because he just didn't feel it was an inclusive culture. And his reaction to that was, I'm too young to change anything. No one's going to listen to me. So I think I've just got the wrong sector. So he's now gone into a comms organisation that said their ambition was to be the organisation that young school leavers or graduates, that when they come into the communications sector, they get an inclusive training and three years after they've been with the organisation, they will have been trained properly. They will have been inducted into their career. They will have been coached. They have been, we have been mentored. They will have been part of an inclusive culture. And that was their aim was to, when you interview those young people three years into their career, it will be like they, they, they want to be seen as the, the, the top place to go to as, as, as far as an employer an inclusive employer of choice. Now, I mean, that's quite a big, bold statement to make because then it's, okay, great, but mm. where, where's, it's, it's how, but it does start yeah. with inclusive onboarding it, 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 mm. it, and they want to get that right. So they're talking to us as their, you know, recruitment partner 
to how it to how to get that right in the in the first um, six months and then that ongoing training and development and ensuring that people from diverse communities all feel part of the organization and I think um, you have to be bold and one of the things we're saying to organizations we work with whether that's through no turning back or through through the f1 uh, when we're recruiting is you know can you give me three reasons why I would put somebody from a minority group into your company Hmm. how are they going to develop and how are they going to shine and how are you going to set them up for success well look that's been a fantastic conversation great discussion to be fair i could go on for a, another half an hour but we've got some quick fire questions that we just want to get your spontaneous answer back so who are your role models and who do you feel display great leadership credentials in these days well I, I, one of my role models has been Scylla Snowball because she's just done such amazing work around gender. And I think she was brave and bold many years before it became it became popular on the women's movement. So she'd be my sort of one of my female you know, people that I've always respected and and looked up to. Yeah, so I'm gonna from an industry perspective, I'm gonna call out Karen Blackett for similar reasons. So Karen has obviously had quite a, a meteoric rise, but all along her journey, she's always main true and genuine to the cause. And actually, what you find, particularly on these agendas, is sometimes the more senior people come, is the more they pull up the ladder <laughs> so that others are not able to, to join them at the table. But Karen's always been uh, a cheerleader and continues to be a cheerleader for many I just wish there'd be more people around her to help her as opposed to her having the, the 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 job of trying to do it for us all. I just wish she had some helpers. What one piece of advice would you give companies intent on improving their diversity and inclusion and representation of their workforce? Oh, okay. Well, I, I, I'm a bit outspoken on this, but I would say get reverse mentored mm. by somebody that is completely different to you different background, different educational background, lives in a different part of the country or different part of the city, mixes with different people, has a completely different perspective, completely different diversity of thinking, Get gets reverse mentored by them and learn before you even start implementing because you need to probably get yourself up to speed on what it's like to be, you know, a 25-year-old coming into our sector. I think organizational leaders need to become farmers and not hunters and the reason why i say that is there's too many people hunting around for the solution for what is systemic change and actually what they need to do is really focus internally within their organizations to understand what their current cultures are doing and they need to adopt the approach of farmers who mm. in trying to grow they make a good point to understand the soil composition of their organisations. Well, Adrian and Amanda, it's been fantastic having you on. Like I say, I, I wish we could have carried on longer, but really stimulating debate. Wish you best of luck and want to be involved with no turning back going forward for many, many years to come. Yeah, it's been it's been awesome, awesome having you both and learned a lot and really feel that this is an episode that the audience will love. So without further ado, have a great week across the pond. So if you're an entrepreneur, rising star or CMO looking for new ideas, find us at marketingtransform.com and on Spotify, Apple, Google and all good podcast platforms.